Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, a serious entrepreneur, Scott Painter. Scott's founded True Car, Cars Direct, and Fair. He's had an extreme focus on solving the problems around buying and owning a car, and he's raised billions of dollars in debt and equity for his startups. Scott's a visionary, and listening to him is just incredibly interesting. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's get into it. Scott Painter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for hopping on here in these uh, crazy, tumultuous, uncertain times. Uh, we're probably just a few miles apart at our homes in, in Los Angeles, but uh, I've been looking forward to having you, just this entrepreneurial car direct to consumer guru, uh, come on here and, and kind of you know walk us through your uh, your journey. Sure. So uh, we usually start, you know, somewhere in the beginning. I know that you started your uh, your professional life off uh, in the army, but it seems like you were just you were born an entrepreneurial kid, right? I was. I you know I grew up in a family where my dad was a small business owner, and I think that instills a lot in not just me but my whole sort of you know family of brothers and sisters. We were always hustling at something because. Uh, everything had a price on it. I mean, if we wanted to make money for whatever, um, we would be able to work for the business. We could do chores. We could do all sorts of different things. And there was always a way to use our time very productively. And so I just from a very early age understood that uh, the harder you work and the more you focus on a thing, the more you can then you know, afford to do what you want to do and finance your dreams. And so I just had that dynamic as part of growing up. And it, it seemed very normal for me. Uh, I think that if you work at something and if you actually are helpful, then you contribute that you'll get rewarded. Uh, okay. I mean, there, there was something you just said there that, that was interesting. You said the harder you work, the more you can do what you want to do. And as a kid, I totally get that. You can go do some chores and then, you know, spend money buying comics or baseball cards or go to the amusement park or something. But is that how you view work and, and like pleasure family life as like two separate entities? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think that at least um, philosophically, everybody says you got to love what you do and therefore it's not work, right? So, um, but let's be honest, um, there are a lot of things you have to do that you don't necessarily love doing in order to be able to pay for shit. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that. Um, I, I certainly am creative in everything that I do, but uh, there are things in life that we all just must bear down and get done. And whether it's schoolwork or whether it's work work or whether it's, you know, taking a kind of meeting that you don't necessarily love, um, you know, I've, I've learned, for example, in my career that one of the things that I'm incredibly good at is fundraising. But raising money is hard. 
it requires an amazing amount of effort and skill and persistence and diligence and capability. And to gear up to go fundraise is real hard work. And I, you know, I, I don't shy away from it at all. And I think it's because I had a work ethic growing up. And I, I do think that, you know, today, too few kids sort of have that work ethic. I know that my four kids all fundamentally understand that they have to do things in order to get that freedom to do what they want to do. Um, there is a, a trade-off. It's not just, you know, all, you know, butterflies and, and rainbows. Yeah. No, I mean, and there definitely is something to be said for if you have your back against the wall versus, you know, not having to, to kill to survive. Um, you know, like these, some of these incredible outcomes in the startup world. Yeah, some of them have come from, you know, Mark Zuckerberg goes to Harvard and seems like to have a pretty privileged upbringing. But then there's others where it's like, I have to do this, otherwise I'm not going to be able to feed my family. Yeah, I, um, you know, I joined the army at 17. I, um, I was on my way to um, San Diego State University, and instead of showing up for fall classes, I enlisted in the army. And I did it so that I could become independent. And I very quickly decided that even though I was in the army, I wanted to be um, a Spanish interrogator. And that was my fast track to get a military appointment to go to West Point. And so I didn't really change my goals. I just changed how I got there. And it was much more something that I could control. Um, going to West Point by enlisting in the army is the least obvious route, but it seemed like the most direct route and one that I could control. Yeah. Interesting. I love when you take all of the uncertainty out of a career and say, what, what, what do I have control of? Like right now in our current times, I mean, the environment in the, you know, this pandemic is kind of drastically changing our lives, but you can't control that. So you got to focus on what you can control. So I love that you uh, went out and did that. So then what happened uh, going to West Point? What was, what was that like? Well, actually, before I got to West Point, um, I, you know, I did not really grow up in a fully integrated environment. And you enlist in the army. First thing you do is you get sent to basic training. And all of a sudden you realize that I'm in a completely new world. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was with, you know, kids of every race, every religion, every sort of walk of life. And I very quickly had to figure out how I fit into that. And I was being trained to go to war. I didn't really know that when I joined the army that um, Bush 41, uh, when he took over, um, had a very clear intention to take Noriega out of power. And so as a Spanish interrogator, I was being trained from the day I entered the army to invade Panama. And that was almost two years from the time I entered the army until we invaded Panama. And I was trained in, you know, Panamanian language, dialect, geography, military nomenclature, rank. It was just, you know, so clear now looking back what we were being trained for. And I then got assigned to the 82nd Airborne. And quite literally just before we invaded Panama, I was then sent off to the Military Academy Preparatory School and fast-tracked into West Point. And so for me, I was a military um, appointment, which meant that I had gone through all of that traditional training and 
I ended up going to a lot of different military specialty schools. I was military intelligence, but as an interrogator, you ended up getting to choose some additional assignments. So I was airborne. I had gone through um, what's called series school, sur survival, escape, and evasion training, and interrogation, voice intercept school. And so I had a number of really interesting special assignments, which were part of that military curriculum leading up to going to um, Panama. And then I carried that over and went into West Point. And when I showed up as a plebe at West Point, I already had a couple rows of ribbons and I had a couple of um, tactical badges. And so it was a very interesting way to show up as a plebe at West Point, which is supposed to be this very emasculating thing. And to, you know, most plebes are right out of high school. Uh, they did very well with their grades. They got nominated by a senator. They ended up going through the traditional route to get into West Point, which is actually a big honor and very hard to do. And there is a percentage, a very small percentage of us that ended up coming through this military appointment channel. I ended up getting a presidential nomination uh, from Bush 41. And that was just something that happened at the very last minute. Um, a very small percentage of people get a presidential nomination. And then when I got to West Point, I was just a little bit older than all the other plebes. I was 21, my plebe year. And most of my classmates were 18. And I had already been in the Army, and I had been trained to go to war. That was very helpful, and I very quickly sort of rose uh, through the ranks at, at West Point. I was class president, um, my um, plebe and yearling year. And so uh, at West Point, it's a war college. You're basically there for what are called your plebe, yearling, cow, and first years. And those four years, um, you go through sort of training to become a military officer. Um, and I was at West Point only for two years. I ended up leaving after my second year. And I took a rugby um, option to go to Cal Berkeley. Um, I played rugby while I was at West Point, and we lost in the national championship game my yearling year to Cal Berkeley. And Cal Berkeley had a very, very well-known rugby program and a great rugby coach. And I did not necessarily want to become a military officer. Um, I had joined West Point or sort of directed myself to West Point because it was the most prestigious route, but I hadn't really thought that that was going to be my career choice. At that time, we also entered into Desert Storm and Desert Shield, which were two operations in the Middle East. And it was pretty clear we were going to be a military at war, and I did not want to be a military officer uh, while we were at war. And so my option to go to West Point was part of a choice that all cadets face after their second year. There's about a 50% attrition. Um, of cadets not opting to continue because once you carry on at West Point past your yearling year, you begin to incur time that you owe back to the military. And um, to the extent that you stay past your yearling year, um, the traditional obligation is a five-year stint as an officer after graduation. And so there tends to be a very natural option where many cadets tend to leave after that second year. I left and went to West or to uh, Cal Berkeley and uh, played rugby for Cal. Interesting. That's a, um, it's quite a story. So, uh, I mean, I guess the uh, transition to Cal was that you didn't see yourself as being an officer for the next five years in the, in the, um, in the army, but 
did you see yourself like pursuing rugby as a thing or was that just like a convenient out? You know, it turns out that um, for me, being in competitive sports was very similar to having, you know, sort of a military family. And I liked the rigor that came with being on a sports team. The, the Cal sports was a pretty intense group. And um, the coach, Jack Clark, was very well known. And so for me, initially, it was about the rugby. And it was about getting out of the military and deciding that I wanted to go off and do my own thing. At you know West Point, you're not really allowed to be very entrepreneurial. In fact, I think the really interesting dynamic about military leadership is that it is about extraordinary following. Um, you're not really, if you look at the great generals in history, um, very few of them tended to be mavericks like MacArthur or Patton. But whether you're looking at like, you know, Pershing or Eisenhower, many of these other generals were just extraordinarily detailed followers. And that's what you need in a general. You need somebody who is, is going to carry out an order, but do it very well. And so I, I became, I think, much more familiar with and understanding of what the military was all about and realized it really wasn't for me. I'm probably not a prototypical military officer for that reason. I'm very much an entrepreneur. I look at things differently. I solve problems differently. And so coming out to Cal for me was, I think, much more authentic about who I was. And I remember when I first enrolled at Cal, my coursework had changed. I was a systems engineer um, for the most part at West Point. I studied um, military um, art and strategy. Um, so I was much more focused on, um, you know, really the tactics of war and strategy and then uh, systems engineering and a little bit of physics. And then I came out to Cal and I completely switched my, my focus from that to economics and sociology. And it was pretty radical to get out to Berkeley, having grown up in a very conservative family and then joining the military and going to West Point. And Berkeley was just very liberal. And I had an economics professor that I did not agree with much at all. Um, she tended not to be nearly as much a supporter of capitalism and that whole laissez-faire type of approach. I, you know, I realized at Cal that I was probably more of a libertarian than anything from a political point of view. I just really believed in, you know, being able to uh, pursue things without too much regulation. And um, I came up with an idea that I ended up launching while I was a student just to sort of prove my economics professor wrong. It was an electronic database of used cars for sale. At the time, everybody was using the classified still. We didn't have the internet. Uh, Mark Andreessen created Mosaic in 1992, I believe. And I was at uh, Cal in early um, 1991, 92. And so uh, this was all prior to the internet. And so I created a relational database on a Mac LC2 of used cars for sale by aggregating all of the newspapers and auto traders that were printed. And I was basically cranking all this information into a database so that people could call a 1-800 number and then buy a list of cars for sale and we would fax them a comprehensive list. So if you wanted a you know, 1989 Honda Accord, I could tell you there were 75 for sale and I could send that information. And I was aggregating all the data from everywhere else. That business um, was something that I started as a student. I hired all of my um, rugby mates, girlfriends, and uh, we had a 
a business that, you know, generated probably about $100,000 a month in revenue within uh, three or four months of getting up and running. I ended up selling that business while I was still a student at Cal. And I ended up repaying my investors, which were mostly family and friends. I had, I had raised about a half a million dollars. I ended up paying everybody two times their money. And then I made a couple million dollars. I ended up selling that company about two weeks prior to graduation. And I never graduated from Cal. So I was um, a college dropout at that point before that was a thing or cool. Um, it did not make uh, my parents happy at all. But I sold that company and I moved to Southern California in 1993 or four. Um, and when I did come down to Southern California, um, you know, I ended up marrying my original squad leader from West Point. Uh, she and I were married for 16 years, had two boys, but that was the beginning of my life here in Southern California. And uh, that was, you know, quite, quite some time ago now. Wow. Pretty cool story, Scott. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I love that you got almost to the end of graduating and sell that business. And you're right, raising half a million dollars in the early 90s for your first startup. Uh, that had to be pretty challenging. But um, as, you, as you said earlier, you're a great fundraiser. So that's amazing. Um, and then you come to California after selling this business. And what are you thinking like next? You're just like, I'm going to find my next entrepreneurial pursuit. Well, it's interesting because I've always believed that um, great entrepreneurs and great businesses solve a real problem. And, um, you know, you asked me at the top of our conversation about, you know, is work work or is work something that you love and therefore it's not really work. Um, I think that the more important sort of analog is, do you enjoy the problem that you're focused on? Because if you look at my career, um, Many people just as entrepreneurs feel like you should always do something new every time you go back and start something new um, because A, you end up learning about it and B, um, you've tried something and either failed or had an exit, so you should move on. I'm a little bit different. I'm either um, more stubborn or more resilient depending on how you want to look at it, but I've had, at this point, 53 incorporations since 1992. Wow. And um, I've raised, at this point, um, billions of dollars of debt and equity for these companies, mostly equity. And almost all of them have been focused on one single problem, buying and owning a car. Um, as a kid, I can tell you my entire story in the context of what was I driving at the time and how that car reflected my situation. It was my avatar in life. And I've always believed that our cars are sort of this reflection of who we think we are in the world. And living in Los Angeles, um, there could be nowhere else that that's more true. Um, a lot of people tend to drive their net worth here. And cars and a car culture was always just something that I really associated with freedom and with good things happening in my life. Um, all of the milestones in my life can be marked with where I was at and what car I was driving. And it really does tell a story of how my life has unfolded. And so for me, this idea that cars, which are such a wonderful milestone, 
are such a gnarly thing to buy um, seemed like a great problem to try to solve. And I always believe that technology has a very ideal state in solving a problem. And specifically, I think, for example, the modern smartphone is so remarkable. And the things that it can do to transform a really high friction experience like buying a car, I think is just tremendous. It's hard to make that change happen. Um, you know, I've had companies like CarsDirect.com, TrueCar, um, and Fair. All of these companies have come up against major incumbents in their categories, and these have not been easy companies to get up and running and funded. Um, they were almost all built on a very simple value proposition that everybody could relate to, and then a very, very strong focus and commitment to seeing that value proposition through and not pivoting away. How you get there is, has always been very interesting, but what we set out to do was always very clear. At Cars Direct, it was to get a car over the internet without having to go into a car dealer. At True Car, it was to get information that could level the playing field and make a first-time car buyer an expert in moments. Um, at Fair, it was about completely reinventing the experience and doing it completely digitally on your phone and also not having to go into debt. So for me, the thread that sort of runs through all of these businesses is that they're all a culmination of one another and they get to a place where we solve the same fundamental problem, buying and owning a car and using technology to do it. Wow. Uh, so, many, so many questions come off of that. But do you think that the biggest challenge today um, is fighting these large existing companies or is it changing consumer behavior? People are used to going and haggling and buying cars and yeah, the true car and you know, providing pure transparency and price, but, but now trying to buy a car on a phone, is that something consumers are comfortable with? So like, where's the bigger challenge there? Yeah, I think you have to reframe all of it. I think that it's first important to acknowledge that the infrastructure that's required to sell 16 plus million new cars every year and maintain a U.S. vehicle fleet of 290 million total cars that are on the road in the U.S. today, that's excluding trucks and you know, commercial vehicles. So you've got just an amazingly high velocity market and it's a very robust market and so why we all sit in traffic every day. So there's a system that certainly exists. I've never um, started a business thinking I want to go confront anybody. Um, it turns out that when I say there's incumbents, um, these are businesses that thrive in this ecosystem that supports the mobility space that we all sort of rely on to get to work and to get around and have a car. So the car is a really remarkable thing. I mean, it's this thing, this big item that for most people costs about a third of their net worth and we put our family in it and we go somewhere. It's, it's a pretty remarkable concept. It just wasn't around 100 years ago and it's really transformed modern life as much as anything else has. And so I, I think that to understand um, how that space is evolving is really where almost any business 
entrepreneur needs to start, you need to have a really deep connection to what's it like today? Why is it going to change? When's it going to change? Who's going to change it? And what's it likely to be in the future? And, um, you know, a lot of uh, people talk about sort of how do you set priorities? Um, you know, like I said, my background was systems engineering and physics. I tend to be very sequential about how I think about problem solving. And I also tend to be very sort of bottoms up about thinking about how a thing should be done, all things considered, this sort of almost ideal type of end state. I don't really get too hung up on why you can't do a thing. Um, and I've never thought that an ideal scenario is impossible because somebody else is in the way. Um, I just don't really, uh, and maybe the best way to explain it is, um, I think entrepreneurs have to have a deep understanding of the law, uh, you know, for example. And most laws were never the result of inspired genius about how to solve problems. Most laws are really put on the books to protect somebody who's being transgressed. So if a consumer has a bad experience, then they go complain. Those complaints sort of become numerically significant. And then all of a sudden, a legislator proposes a law. And then all of a sudden, we have either regulation or we have some kind of way to protect that consumer and others like them from having that kind of an experience. So laws tend to be um, the result of the opposite of innovation and problem solving. They tend to be created as a balance or an offset to innovation and problem solving as a way of protecting us. And so there's this constant friction that go on between entrepreneurs and understanding how the law works. And for me, I've always taken a spirit of the law, letter of the law approach, which means that um, I first want to understand the spirit of a law. Because if it's written wrong, and you have to comply with the letter of the law, but the letter of the law doesn't necessarily get at the reason the law was put into place in the first place, then you're not going to ever really solve the problem. And um, there are plenty of rules that you can bend as an entrepreneur. And as long as you stay within the spirit of a law, for example, you'll ultimately prevail because it's the right way to think about a thing given the new set of rules or the new set of circumstances that you're introducing. So no one ever envisioned, for example, that the internet was going to come along and create a digital pathway for a consumer to buy a car. So when many of the laws that were written that protect auto retail and consumers and their experience in buying a car, they never contemplated some of these changes. And so as an entrepreneur, I came along at a time when consumer behavior was just fundamentally changing. And I was able to just, as a problem solver, really have the benefit of saying, I think this is likely to happen. Um, and I think that most really successful entrepreneurs, certainly in tech, have a deep connection to what it means to be a digital native or, or really at one with the technology and how it can enable a better experience. And, you know, it's funny because in the space that I work in, which is automotive, I tend to come up come up against a lot of people who have made a living in this space for a very long time who are not in any way, shape, or form technologists. And what I represent to them is change. And therefore, I've had sort of a high friction 
relationship with many of them because it's not so much me that's changing, but it's the way their consumers behave and the technologies that they have access to. And I'm the guy who's out there shaping those things. And so I tend to just be um, much more fluent in the capabilities that the technology unlocks than many of my peers. And therefore, I tend to be a little bit of um, an, you know, uh, you know, a really, really uh, high-profile entrepreneur where people are constantly looking to, hey, what's next in technology as it relates to buying a car? Talk to him. And that has created its own momentum. It's become much easier for me, for example, to build companies and raise money in this space because I have a certain reputation for doing that. And that's part of the reason why I've stayed focused on one particular problem. And every company that I've launched over the last 15, 20 years has been a further evolution of my thinking on that and a reflection of where I think technology was at at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess the, the logical next question is the future. Like with car sharing and autonomous vehicles, you know, our our kids and our kids' kids going to have that, those same type of reflective life moments of remembering what cars they're driving or are cars going to become just more of a utility to get you from A to B? Yeah, I tend to be, um, first of all, much more emotional about cars. I think that if I look at my kids, uh, you know, I've got a 17-year-old who went through the process of getting his driver's license and getting excited about getting a car. And just like when I turned 16, turning 16 is a rite of passage that comes with getting your driver's license. And, you know, there's a lot of people that say kids today don't even think they need to own a car. They're just going to Uber everywhere. And I don't really buy into that. I think that there is probably going to be less car ownership and less needing to get a car if you live in a very dense metropolitan area like New York City. But I think that in Los Angeles, for example, um, most kids, um, my son's age, go through the process of getting their driver's license and getting a car. And it's a big, exciting thing because that car represents freedom and the ability for them to go where they want. And so I think that it is highly unlikely that the car as a thing, which represents freedom and the ability to go where you want and become who you want in this world, I don't think that goes away. And when we were building my last company, Fair, um, you know, it was mostly engineers who were in their late 20s and early 30s. And at one point in the process, we required that everybody ride Uber or Lyft for 30 days. And it's just not practical. And even though many of them started that journey saying, I don't need a car, they when they tried it, they realized, I do need a car. If you're a parent and you've got kids that got to get to school and you got to pick them up and get them to all their activities, you need a car. If you're somebody who's got to get somewhere on a different schedule than the bus schedule, you need a car if you don't have public transportation to your destination like downtown New York City every day. So I think the ability to uh, sort of just baseline understand what's likely to happen, I do believe that we are moving radically towards electric. And I do believe that at some point in the very near future, if a car pulls up um, a rideshare vehicle and there's a human being behind the wheel, you're not gonna get it in the car. Um, so the, 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 the sort of things that we think of as a car are going to change. But you've also got, like I said, 290 million largely non-autonomous, mostly non-electric cars. 
on the road today. Cars last on average between 15 and 20 years. It's a very durable product. They don't tend to get quote used up. Um, you know, the life expectancy of a car in the sort of 50s and 60s was usually 10 years, but some of the coolest cars on the road today are made in the 60s. Um, so I think that it is important to understand that the idealism around autonomous driving, for example, is going to have to be one that lives sort of in harmony with non-autonomous cars because you cannot go back and take a 1966 Ford Mustang and expect it to drive itself anytime. So you're going to have a sort of hybrid reality. And the idea that, you know, cars are going to just all of a sudden tomorrow drive themselves is also not practical because the way the technology is unfolding, there are many different levels of autonomy from driver assisted to fully self-driving cars where the steering wheel goes away. But, you know, what we all now sort of consider to be very commonplace where the car is going to keep us from, you know, dinging itself when it parks or it's going to stop itself when a kid runs in the middle of the road or it can change lanes on the freeway. All of those things are going to make cars safer, more progressively safer. And level one, two, three, four, five autonomy will come in over a period of three, four, five, maybe even 10 years. But we make in this country about 16 and a half million new cars every year. And we have um, many more uh, used cars than that. Uh, like I said, 290 million. So as you're adding cars on the top and you're taking only about 10% of the cars that you make every year off the road, so the park or the total population of cars that are out there is growing um, and not shrinking. And so you're going to have a 50-year you know, cycle here where we embrace and adopt autonomous technology. It's not going to be something that happens overnight. We're certainly going to have, you know, sort of more and more safety introduced. And the real disruption in that is not going to be what we drive per se, but how we insure it. Because if a car is just inherently safer, you don't have to spend nearly as much money on premium because today, everybody either overpays or underpays for their car insurance. The only way to find out which one you are is to wreck your car. Um, but insurance is an imperfect thing based on averages. And if the average car is having fewer accidents and therefore needs less work, insurance as a premium for the end user will come down and those margins based on breakage will also come down. So the insurance business is going to be less and less of a good business, so to speak, um, over time. It doesn't mean that people won't require insurance, but cars will just be inherently safer and be getting into fewer and fewer accidents. So interesting, Scott. This has been uh, really, really fun hearing your journey and your insights. I'll get you out of here on this. What car do you drive today? You know, I've got a, uh, a couple of different vehicles. I, I drive a 1966 Mustang um, Shelby 350 GTH. Um, I've also got a 1971 Ford Bronco. Um, so I tend to like older cars just for my daily drivers. I also have a couple of uh, vehicles that I predominantly drive my kids around in. I've got a, uh, like a Metris uh, minivan for my kids. Um, it's just so efficient. And then I've also got, uh, you know, a, a Range Rover just to get around LA and uh, pick up my kids and drop them off and whatnot. So 
I tend to think of also, you know, cars as um, being perfect for what they really are intended to be. And it's so funny. You can, you can tell so much about somebody based on what they are driving. Um, I remember when, you know, General Motors came out with the Humvee. I just thought that was a great vehicle because it didn't compromise. It was designed to do a particular thing. I also equally loved when BMW came out with the Mini and thought, what a wonderful sort of perfect reflection of what somebody really wants and needs and who they want to be in the world. And, you know, the rise of the Prius was just a really remarkable study in um, a car being, you know, a badge of who you wanted to be in the world. And there was a time in Los Angeles where if you were in the entertainment business and you didn't drive a Prius, you just were missing the point. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, it's going to be a really interesting time. I love, I love cars. I love the whole process of getting a car. I tend to think that, uh, there's nothing better than getting a new vehicle. And I'm not talking about brand new. I'm talking about just a car that's new to you because it, it usually means that something good is happening in your life. You've got a promotion, you sold a company, you're starting a family, you're moving to a new city. You've got a new reason for a vehicle. Your your you know one of your kids is getting a driving age. All sorts of really really good things are going on that make us want to go get a car. And um, I I tend to really enjoy problem solving in that space. I think it's also one of these problems that's so big and so gnarly that I will probably continue to build businesses in this space for the time being. Um, and I don't see any end of the opportunity or the need to continue innovating. Amazing. Scott, this is so much fun speaking with you. What a pleasure. Uh, Again, thanks for doing it. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow. Thanks.